next week we get to catch a glimpse into that second season at 84th and MacArthur, so come back for that. Do any of you remember any of those moments in our church history? How many of you were connected to the port at some level at some point in our history? Yes. The port was a, you know, our youth, our, yes. Our student ministries meet over here in the port lounge, and this building was actually designed to be the port here, and it operated as the port until the, uh, the actual port down in Oakland shut down um, in, the, in the 80s or 90s. And so all of these foundation stones that were laid back in 1937 and in the 40s kind of grew up into the church that we experience today. A few years back, it was probably three or four years ago, I, I had lunch with Bill Doyle and Butch Monk. And, and the reason that I, I asked Bill to have lunch is I said, I would love to just catch a glimpse into what, what do you believe was, is the story in the life of our church that God used to build it into what it is today? And I was expecting that Bill would tell me a story about the illustrated sermons or a story about the port. Um, and then we sat down at, at lunch and he said, hey, I, I want to tell you a story that I've never told anyone. Um, this is not a story I tell. I want to tell you the story about when my little brother passed away. He said, I, I've been hesitant to tell this story in circles like this because I really believe that this incident is the moment when our church really started to grow and and I never want anyone to think that the Doyle family is the reason that our church grew in, in any way. And yet, when the church rallied around um, Bill's mom and Bill's dad, and, and the congregation started to bring meals and support and love, God, God used the love that flowed through the congregation to just bring in this new catalytic season of growth and energy. And the church, just like you saw in the video, just took off from there. And so this morning, as we, we talk primarily about the ministries that we launch, things like the protocol, things like the illustrated sermons, these are the things that we've done intentionally, in a sense, to try to allow God to work to reach lost people for Jesus. I think it's important that we do not forget that the primary way that God works to reach the world is through the love that Christians show for each other and Christians show into the world. And Jesus said, by this, all men will know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. And so as we talk about how to find creative and innovative ways to reach out to the community around us, let us not forget that primarily the conduit God uses to reach the community is the love that we have for him and the love that we have for each other. And this morning I want to do a, a start a study in the book of Acts chapter 17. And you can turn in your Bibles there if you would like. We'll spend three weeks in this text... And this morning, we're just going to kick it off just with a couple of verses and primarily look at verses 16 and 17. Paul has been bouncing around and finally finds his place in Athens where he's waiting for his companions to show up. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, tells us, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. We'll read a little bit more. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. 
Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the I should have practiced that one. Oropagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. You know, as I look back at the history of our church, it's powerful to see what God can do when men and women have a burden to reach lost people for Jesus. If you're taking notes today, I know that page is blank and that's kind of how my pages are. It says on there, the burden that sparked it all. And that's kind of what we were looking for as we did this documentary was what is the burden that sparked it all? And what we discovered is there's this burden, Earl had it, this burden to reach lost people in innovative and creative ways. When, when Earl came across Muzzy's Path, who was running the port through a different ministry, and it was growing but limited by the scope that that church had kind of allowed her to operate within, Earl saw someone who had the same burden as him, the burden to reach out to the community in ways that would reach people that no one else was reaching. This burden they had sparked the Portocol ministry. The burden that they had sparked the illustrated sermons. This burden that they had sparked this radio station that would get the gospel into people's homes. This burden that Paul has sparks his conversations. It even sparks the missionary journey that he's taking in Acts 15 and 16 and 17 all around the Mediterranean region. There's this burden in their lives. Yet when I look at these texts and I look at these stories, the question I ask is, how do you go from burden to gospel ministry? Many of us have burdens for, for our kids We have burdens for our grandkids. We have burdens for our neighbors. We have burdens for people who live in our neighborhoods. And a lot of times we feel like that burden, we wish it was enough, but it's not. We have a burden for our neighbor, but we never have materialized conversations about Jesus with our neighbor. We have this burden for our grandkids, but we just see them kind of drifting in the world. And we wish that somehow God would engage with them. And so we pray and we feel and our hearts are heavy, but we don't know how to turn the burden into conversation, or the burden into ministry, into effective gospel transformation in the lives of the people that we love. And this morning, as we look at this text, what we see is that Paul starts with a burden, and he ends up standing on Mars Hill preaching the gospel with all of the leaders in town. And so the question I want to ask this week and the next few weeks is, how does he go from stranger in Athens to the man standing on the platform debating religion with all of the philosophical and religious leaders of that day. And Paul, like I said, had been bouncing all around the Mediterranean, and he kind of had this routine that he would go into anytime he would enter a city. He would find a Jewish synagogue, or if there wasn't a Jewish synagogue, he would go down outside of the city by the river and find the men or the women who were praying there, and he would start conversations from that Jewish context, start conversations about Jesus And tell them about his experience, tell them about the Bible, tell them about the gospel, and work and minister and wrestle with people until folks started to come to Christ, and then he'd plant churches. But when we see that Paul gets to Athens, it's a little bit different. Yeah, they have a synagogue, and he goes to the synagogue, but Luke puts Paul in the marketplace. It says in verse 16 that while he was waiting for his companions to come, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. If you look kind of at the topography of, of Athens today and in those days, you've got the, 
the, the big Acropolis on the top of the hill in Athens. You can Google that and see a picture of that. You've got Mars Hill, which is kind of down off the side, this platform where Paul would stand at the end of this section. And then down the hill from that was the marketplace, the Agora. And there'd be all these booths and people would be selling idols and there'd be idol statues. And, and Paul, it sounds like as he waited for his friends, was just walking around the marketplace and he started seeing that the Athenian way of life was diametrically opposed to the teachings of Christianity. So idol statues everywhere. He says later in his speech, I even saw a statue to an unknown God. You have so many gods, you're even worshiping gods that you don't even know who they are yet. He walks around the city and something in his heart starts to, to break, to ache, to yearn for God to break through in that place. Athens was a dark place. Does it feel like this is a dark place? You know, a lot of us have lived here a long, long time, and sometimes when you live in a place for a long, long time, it just feels normal, right? I wonder if the Apostle Paul came on a missions journey to America, if he landed in the East Bay, would he feel that same distress, the, the idolatry here? Is there darkness here? This week, as I was thinking about it, I started researching, what, what, are the, what are the churches or the cities in our country that are the least affected by the gospel, where the least amount of people Go to church. Where do you think our area would land on, on, a city, on a list of cities? Yeah, top five. Here are the top five out of the 50. Vegas, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, Nevada, and then right here. 60% of people in our area do not attend church. I, I don't actually think the San Francisco Bay Area uh, is the darkest place in America. I think those other cities up in, up in the Northeast in Massachusetts, there's actually more of a darkness. Some other stats talk about regions where people are most post-Christian, like they don't even think like Christians think. They reject Christianity outright. And San Francisco kind of drops down to number five, number six, and Massachusetts jumps up to number one on those cities of people who just reject Christianity outright. But in terms of church attendance, in terms of people engaging with the gospel community on a weekly basis or darkening the doors of a, of a church on a Sunday morning, this is it. If you're looking for the darkest place to live in America, welcome. <laughs> you're here. <laughs> on a, on a, I went on a missions trip a few years back, and, and people had told me that, that sometimes when you go on missions trips, you can sense the spiritual darkness, that you land in a country where people are, are worshiping idols or you land in a place where people are just far from God and you start to sense this oppression. And, and I went through all these different communities and, and the missions partners that Mark and I visited were so on fire for the gospel. I never felt the oppression anywhere. There were some scary moments, but I never felt this like darkness presence until our plane was coming down into SFO. And as I looked out the window and started to feel what it feels like to try to do ministry here in, in the Bay Area, it's the first time in my life I kind of felt that burden. It's kind of like when you go to Tahoe, you know, it smells like trees. People in Tahoe don't smell that. I always notice that if I go to Arizona or if I go to Texas or if I go out of town and then I come back after a couple of weeks, it smells like Tahoe here. I'm like, when did somebody plant all the trees in Castro Valley, right? But something about you sit in a place for a long enough time and it no longer smells to you. Your house smells different to your visitors than it does to you. Our community feels darker to others than it does to us. And yet, if we look at statistics, 
And if we think about it rationally and reasonably, we realize that in terms of places in our country to live where people are farthest from God, this is it. And so the question emerges, well, what, what do you do? Well, what do you do when you live in a place where the people are far from God and you have this desire from the scriptures, this desire in your life to reach them? And I think as we look at this text, the hinge pin of all of Acts 17 When Paul's ministry in Athens really takes off, the one word I see is right here in verse 16. This is the verb that Luke just pulls out and says, look at this one first. It says that Paul was greatly distressed. In Greek it says that that his soul within him was like wrenched. It says the word him twice. It says, the soul of his was wrenched within him. And so the English translators say he was, he was greatly distressed. There was something in his heart that just started to break. I think if you, if you want to experience breakthrough in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, if we want to experience that kind of gospel ministry continually in our church, it has to start with our hearts being broken for the lost world out there. Developing that, that burden. And Paul doesn't do anything to make this burden happen. He just walks around. I think sometimes we're too busy to just walk around. Have you ever walked around the neighborhood, in your neighborhood? Have you ever walked down the boulevard in Castro Valley? Have you ever walked down into the city center of San Lorenzo or into Hayward or the place that you live? And sometimes when we get into these places and it seems like there's unrest, it seems like there's dirtiness, it seems like there's tension, we kind of just turn our heads and keep walking. And yet as Paul walks through Athens, he's observing he stops at the statues and he, he reads the inscriptions on them. He sees the people buying idols and he, he watches them and thinks about what it would be like to be someone worshiping an idol in your home. And then he thinks about the, the worship he does in his home with, with Jesus and how different it is and the transformation he's experienced and he slows down enough to experience the broken world around him. I wonder what would happen if we started walking around our neighborhoods, praying for our neighbors, listening when our neighbors start fighting in their houses instead of closing the doors and putting in our earplugs, listening and saying, what? What's happening in that place? When we notice that our neighbor is drunk in the middle of the day, every day, that we would slow down and think, what is that person's life like? When we see the kids who are hanging out and their parents are nowhere to be seen, we wonder, what, what kind of household is that? And not in a judgmental way, but... In a way, to, to think, what, what would it look like if Jesus himself intersected into that family? And what could it look like for me to intersect into that? Maybe there's nothing you can do. But a lot of times, the things that we can do start when God develops a burden inside of us. Paul's burden, as it tends to do with Paul, moves from his heart to his mouth. We see in verse 17, the second major verb in this passage, he was greatly distressed, and so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. If we look at this text, it kind of feels like the equation that God gives us for gospel ministry is burden plus reasoning. If you have this burden in your heart, and then you open your mouth and share the gospel, amazing things happen. And, And I think that's probably true. But at the same time, I think a lot of us, the reason that we don't have a lot of amazing ministry in our lives is that we might have a burden, but it's very scary to open our mouths and say something. 
And so we know kind of where it's going. Okay, if I listen to my neighbors and I pray for my neighbors, next I have to go talk to my neighbors. And I tried that one time and it doesn't work very well. I think that's sometimes where it breaks down is between burden and, and reasoning. But I think sometimes the reason that it breaks down is I think sometimes people aren't able to reason with us, especially in a place of great spiritual darkness. I was talking to somebody last week who, who is not a follower of Christ and yet really wants to be. And we've talked about the gospel several times. We, we talk about spiritual things a lot. And, and he expressed to me, he said, Danny, I, I really want to follow Jesus. He said, but I feel like there's this like mental block in my head. And I can't take it out. So how, how do you follow Jesus and not have all these doubts that I have? How do you get that that block out of your brain and so that you can engage with these things. He says, because I can think about them and they start to make rational sense, but then when it comes to surrendering my life to Christ, it's like I, I hit this wall and I can't get through it. How do you remove that? How do you remove that wall? You know, Paul talks about this in Corinthians, right? He says that there's this veil that's in front of us that guards our hearts and only in Christ is it taken away. That, there, that the, the truth is that people cannot be reasoned into the family of God. The, the Apostle Paul, God uses words and God used the Apostle Paul to reason with people and God lifted the veil and he drew them in, but you can't argue your neighbor into the kingdom, right? You can't argue your children into following Jesus. And some of you have this burden for your kids and you share with your kids and you share with your kids and it's like there's this wall and you, you wonder which words do I need to have to get that wall taken away? So sometimes we try to add reasoning to our burden and it just falls short. The interesting thing to me is that as I read this passage of Paul in Athens, the reason that he reasoned was because he was in Athens specifically. Look at verse 21. This, I've never seen this before this week, even though it's like my favorite chapter in the Bible. I don't know if I've never seen this. So Luke tells us this whole story of how he's arguing and debating and reasoning and people are coming to Christ and all these things. And then it says in verse 21, in parentheses in my Bible, kind of like Luke saying, hey, just so you know, this is why this worked in this city. It says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That's what they did all day. I'll say it again, Norris. All the Athenians and all the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That's all they did. I'm going to guess that your neighbors don't do nothing but spend all their time talking about the latest ideas in religion and spirituality. That's my guess. If they do, go insert Jesus into that conversation. If they don't, maybe there's a different route that God wants to use to help you engage with those people. I think that equation of burden plus reasoning equals gospel ministry is not absolutely accurate from this text. I think a better equation, and we can put this on the screen for you, is not reasoning, but that burden, you have to put it before me because I forgot it, burden plus the next one, engagement <laughs> equals, this is why you come at 8 o'clock. Well-oiled machine at 9.30. Burden plus engagement equals gospel ministry. The, the key that Paul had was not merely that he was reasoning. Reasoning works because he was engaging with what the culture was doing. Right? If your neighbors are talking about God, the religious stuff all day, go and talk to them about Jesus too. Right? If your coworkers are having spiritual conversations, throw your hat in the ring. But if they're not, 
Sometimes it doesn't work to just be that evangelist and throw some tracks on, on the coffee room uh, table at work, right? But what but Paul does, wherever he goes, and we saw a window of opportunity in Athens, is engaging in what the culture is already doing. And think about Earl Sexauer launching illustrated sermons. Think about Earl Sexauer launching a radio broadcast. He's thinking, okay, people are listening to the radio. People want to go out on Sunday night. What if they could come here? What if when they turn on their radio, they hear the gospel? Right, people are... Uh, I wasn't alive in the 40s, but I picture like, remember that show, A Christmas Story, where Ralphie's like sitting by the radio and he's listening to like the Red Rider BB gun thing. Like I picture these people sitting around their radios. I might be a few decades off or something, but I picture these people sitting around their radios and Earl Sexauer thinking, what if Jesus came out when they turned that knob, right? It's like Pastor Jake used to go down to the restaurants and click on the jukeboxes and say, what are the people listening to? Let's do a series on that, right? That's how we would figure it out. What are the people already doing? How can we insert the gospel into that thing? Right, Muzzy had this burden for these sailors who were far from home. And she'd look around her community in Oakland. She'd see them wandering the streets on the weekends, trying to find some kind of love through connecting with other people, trying to find some kind of fun through bouncing from bar to bar, but going back to the base tired or discouraged or messed up at the end of it and thinking, okay, what if not I can go slide some tracks at those people at the bar, right? Track coasters or something. But instead, what if what they really are longing for is community and family and they're far from home? What if I could provide a home for those people? And so they build this house. You saw the pictures. They build this house right next to the church and give Muzzy this. Do you have the picture of that car? I love this car, this port of call car where Muzzy's going down and picking kids up and saying, come on back to the port. And they're having a great time and they're providing a home away from home. Right? It wasn't burden plus reasoning. It was burden plus engagement. Look at these sailors. How can we connect with them? And how can we sweave the gospel into where they are and what they're doing? And we as a church, we talk a lot about the hallmark ministries of what we do, and we'll see a lot of those in these videos these next three weeks. But the common thread that we always talk about is that it's, it almost seems like the, the burden that God has given us is to cast nets, we say, like a fisherman, cast nets into our community. To look for places where, where people would very easily engage with what we're doing and, and then find ways to weave the gospel into it. And so we realize at Christmas time, people are looking for things to do with their family. What if we can cast this net and say, hey, you and your 10,000 closest friends, come on up and experience this Christmas presentation, and we're going to get you in the Christmas spirit, and we're going to tell you about Jesus and the gospel, and hopefully you will leave transformed. That, that's how we look at things. We launch this cafe. We say people out there, they don't want to come to church in our area, especially folks in their, their 30s and their 20s, but they get coffee. But what if we built a coffee shop, not like a Christian coffee shop, but an artisan coffee shop that people would want to come to? And then thousands of people will come and we'll find ways to come alongside them in a relationship and help them find their ways into our church community. Let's cast nets into the community and find places that people already are engaging and find likely ways to bring the gospel into the places where they are. A burden and plus engagement equals gospel ministry. And the same thing is true in, in each of our lives. I, I don't think necessarily the, the combination God is advocating for you is to develop a burden for your kids and then just reason with them day in and day out. That's also called embittering your children. Right? I think the Bible says not to do that. But really the, what God might advocate is that you already have this burden for your kids and you pray for your kids and you look for opportunities to engage with them. 
So some of you do this. If your kid says, I've been thinking about going to the men's retreat. You're like, I'm going to the men's retreat now, right? They say, I'm thinking about going to check out a church service. Absolutely, let's go, right? Or if they say, hey, dad, you want to go camping? You say, yes, right? And you pray that God uses that experience to bind you closer together and give you opportunities to have great, substantial conversations about the gospel along the way. That it doesn't just work to reason with your kids all day long, but we pray that God gives us open windows to engage with them. We know that no one's going to accept Christ until they hear the gospel. That's not what I'm saying. But sometimes we have to go and step into people's worlds before God opens the door for the gospel to come out of our mouths and into their ears and down into their hearts. That's, that's what we believe as Christians, right? God spent a lot of years shouting from the heavens that we should follow him. He spent a lot of years sending these prophets to go and tell us we should follow him. And finally, when the time had fully come, God said, you know what, I'm going down there myself. Right? And so the son steps onto the earth. God puts on flesh, dwells among us, lives with us, lives in the rhythm of our lives, comes alongside of us, engages with us, and finds us from there, and then leads us back to God. He does the work. He bears the burden. He dies for sin. He raises from the grave. He ushers in life, but he comes down to get us. We have a Bible that God can use to reason with us. And yet the reason that we worship God is not merely that he reasoned with us, but that he came down engaged with us to open our ears to the reasoning that he had for us. Even this morning as we receive the communion meal together, it's a, it's a reminder that Christ is, is with us, that he came for us. We can hold this bread and we can hold this cup in our hands because it reminds us that the God of the universe at one point had a human body on this planet with us. That the God who dwells in the heavens at one point had blood flowing through his veins on this planet with us. And though we poured it out of him, he abided in his love towards us to reconcile us to himself because his message was he was coming for us. And Jesus says, I came to seek and save that which was lost. There's a quote that we found from, from our church back in the early days. And, and it's fun because nobody knows who says it. It was just in this, this uh, article that somebody had written up about our church. And, and it said, hey, this is what their pastors say. This is what the church says about how they do ministry. I wanted to show you this quote. It says, other churches can guard the orthodoxy of ritual. But the people, the sinful the seeking multitudes, they matter most. I think one of the reasons that, that we don't engage with the people in our lives is because we have this ritual, we got stuff to do. And my challenge for us today, it, other people can guard the orthodoxy of ritual. Other people can do things on a schedule. Other people can be really efficient. Other people can go and make sure that they're the one who always gets their trash out on time, right? Other people can do that. But for us, put it back up. For us... The people, the sinful, the seeking multitudes, they matter most. And what if we wrapped our lives and wrapped our schedules and wrapped our burdens and wrapped our ears and our engagement, not around the rituals and the rhythms of our own lives that we've designed to make us efficient and prosperous. What if we wrapped our lives around the people that God has placed and we would go and get them like he did for us? Let me pray for us and then we'll receive communion together. Let's pray.